Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. And we are so excited today to be talking to Dr. Rick Hansen. He is the author of several books, several New York Times bestselling books, including Buddha's Brain and Hardwiring Happiness, The New Brain Science of Contentment, Calm, and Confidence, which shows you how to tap the hidden power of everyday experiences to change your brain and your life for the better. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's really my pleasure, and please call me Rex. I get to call you, uh, you know, Jan and Laura. Okay, (laughs) that sounds good. good. Well, Rick, you say you can beat the brain's negativity bias, which you say is like Velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones. Tell us more about this negativity bias. Right. It's a very solid finding in science, and we've all had experiences of it. Uh, Let's say you have a job review and your boss tells you 10 things about yourself. Nine are good. One is room for improvement. What's the one you obsess about for the rest of the day, right? Or maybe 10 things happen in your relationship, and nine of them are good. One of them is awkward, tense, something. And what's the one you tend to think about when you're falling asleep? It's the negative one. And that's because as our ancestors evolved, uh, it was really important for them to remember painful, difficult, stressful experiences and what they did to get through them because they may not have another chance the next time something bad like that happens. So the brain has what scientists call a negativity bias. We tend to overlearn from bad experiences, but we underlearn from good experiences. That might be really good for survival under terrible conditions. But for most people today, it creates a lot of unnecessary stress and a lot of unnecessary conflict with each other. It's kind of like the brain has a built-in, well-intended learning disability. So what you can do is help yourself not get too sucked into the negative. And meanwhile, help your brain be more like tough, pardon me, more like Velcro for the good by helping good experiences really sink in so they actually get hardwired into your nervous system. You talk about HEAL. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, I use HEAL, H-E-A-L, as an acronym for the basic idea of how do we grow strengths inside? How do you grow grit, resilience, confidence, and even happiness itself? How do you actually do that? It's essentially a two-stage process. This is the fundamental neuropsychology of learning. First, you have to experience whatever you want to grow inside, gratitude, compassion, self-worth, how to be more skillful with your partner, you name it. First, we have to experience it. But then, critically important, we have to take a few extra seconds to help that experience actually start to transfer into the nervous system and be consolidated there. So I use the acronym HEAL to stand for Have, Enrich, Absorb, and Link to summarize that whole process. Really briefly, have just means have some kind of useful experience in the first place, usually because it's already there right under your nose. Sense of accomplishment, you finish the dishes, sense of closeness with a friend, sense of uh, internal strength when you stand up for something. Okay, it's already happening. And then enrich it and absorb it, which will really help uh, it to land more inside you rather than be just one more passing moment that was nice but did not leave any lasting benefit behind. So enrich means things like stay with it for 5, 10, 20, 30 seconds in a row. Try to feel it in your body. um, Help it be intense. See what's personally relevant about it. And absorb means get a sense of it sinking into you, especially by noticing what feels good about it. Because when you notice what feels good about an experience, that mobilizes dopamine and norepinephrine, two neurotransmitters, which flag experiences as keepers. And then L to finish stands for link, which just means 
uh, if you're aware of two things at once, they tend to associate with each other. So in effect, you can hack your own brain by being aware of something positive and beneficial that's sort of large and in, and in the foreground of awareness, while off to the side, is something that's painful and difficult. Like, for example, to feel in the foreground of awareness that people care about you and treat you well today, while off to the side maybe are old feelings from previous relationships or even childhood itself. And because in the famous saying, neurons that fire together, wire together. So if you get two, in effect, groups of neurons firing together, the positive and the negative, but you keep the positive bigger, it will gradually associate with and soothe and even replace the negative. The essence of all of it is have it, enjoy it. In other words, have the useful experiences and then don't waste them on your brain. Uh, enjoy them, stay with them and help them become a lasting part of you. But, how, oh, I'm how, sorry. Go on, Mom. Yeah, how do you do this if if you're really in the midst of a very negative time in life? If, say, you right. lost your job, you're broke, you ended a relationship, or maybe you're dealing with a serious illness and, and just yeah. everything seems to be, you know, a domino effect of, of negative feelings. 100%. And there's what, what motivates me, what interests me is how do you grow muscles inside? In a sense, mental muscles, psychological resources. And none of this is about positive thinking or looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. It's about really seeing that life is challenging and also the brain has this negativity bias. So how do we deal with that? So in that light, very often in the moment, all you can do is ride out the storm. But let's remember how you ride out the storm a lot has to do with the psychological resources that hopefully you've grown and cultivated at other times in your life, maybe using the heel steps in your own informal way. Um, so that when the oatmeal hits the fan, when you're ill or you've got a family member, let's say, who's ill or anything like that, you're dealing maybe with poverty on a regular basis. So when that um, happens, you actually have resources inside to deal with it. I think of it as sort of like in three steps. The first step is we just be with what's there. We try to feel it fully. We ride out the storm uh, as best we can, not pouring gasoline on the fire. The second step, you start moving into letting go. You start letting feelings flow. You start disengaging from these thoughts we have. You start letting tension flow out of your body. And then in the third step, the really important step, you try to uh, replace what you've released with something positive, something beneficial, uh, only in an authentic way. Sometimes it takes people just a handful of seconds to go through those three steps. Sometimes it takes a month, if not years, to actually work all the way through them. And then they actually occur in almost a deepening spiral. First, we be with what's there. Then we release, then we receive into ourselves something good, which help us then in turn be with what's there even more deeply in a, in a healing kind of spiral. So that's sort of a roadmap for me and a, and a way I use routinely, including with my wife of 35 years or other situations, uh, just to work through things. Um, and it's something that people can do just in ordinary life. But don't forget the third step really important. It's like if your mind is like a garden, once you pull the weeds, you got to replace them with flowers or the weeds come back. Mm -hmm. What are some ways that you can feel good really quickly? Because I know for young people that would be listening to the show and, and like sure. myself, um, I've had times where I've gone through a breakup and, you know, yeah, you're trying to be realistic and, and go through kind of the heel steps, but, mm -hmm. you know, it, you can't be perfect with it just starting out. So is there a, a, any strategy that you would use? Oh, several. And um, so one of the fastest ways to help yourself feel better, let's, let's say that you've, 
you've touched the pain. Maybe the way I talk about myself is that I landed in adulthood with what felt like a bucket of tears that I emptied one spoonful at a time. So sometimes often all you can do is just touch the pain and then you've got to move on. But at least there's been something authentic. You haven't been repressing it. You've been willing to be mindful of it and aware of it. Okay, so let's say you did that. Three major go-tos that are grounded in our own biology, that are Mother Nature's instant stress relief. One is to notice that in this moment, at least, you're basically okay. Maybe you don't feel the greatest. You may not be basically okay in the future, but in this moment, there's enough air to breathe. Right. You're alive, at least. Yep, you're alive. The Mm -hmm. body's basically alive. Um, The heart is still beating. You know, you're not in a burning building. There's no shark chewing on your leg. Someone that you love has not just died. Uh, At least in this moment, you're basically okay. In other words, help yourself feel as safe as you reasonably can. Bound the problem. It's it's this bad, but it's not that bad. That's the first thing you can do. Notice your, I call it, notice you're basically all right, right now. First. The second thing you can do, this Mother Nature's stress relief plan, is find something pleasurable. A little bit of healthy pleasure. Eat that cookie. Wash your hands. Look out the window. See something beautiful. A moment of pleasure, basic healthy pleasure, immediately calms down the body and reduces the stress response. The third thing a person can do in the moment is to feel connected to somebody else any way you can. Uh, look at uh, look at the pictures on your refrigerator of your family or your grandkids. Uh, call a friend, text a friend, remember a friend, remember your grandmother who loves you. Uh, in any way, shape, or form, try to get a sense of connection with others. We're tribal beings. And uh, the feeling of not being part of the group, not being cared about, not being seen, was extremely dangerous as our ancestors were living together and, and evolving over millions of years. And so today, as soon as you bring to mind that feeling of connection and being cared about by other people, again, lots of research shows that that immediately starts to calm down the stress response. So those are my three immediate first aid kit, right? And they work routinely. We thank you for being part of our Nobody Told Me family of listeners. If you're like us, you want to do the right thing to keep your body healthy. So stay tuned to hear more about how our Nobody Told Me listeners can get a tremendous offer from our sponsor, Ritual, the obsessively researched vitamin for women. You know, vitamin labels can be disappointing and misleading with questionable ingredients and sugary formulas. But then there's Ritual, made for skeptics by skeptics. With their multivitamin for women, what you see is what you get, and what you get is good. You may have heard us talk about Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin, which was formulated by exhaustive research to help fill nutrient gaps in the diets of women over the age of 18. Laura and I started taking Ritual Essential for Women multivitamins a couple of years ago. I look forward to taking them every day because I really like the way they smell minty and leave your mouth feeling fresh without the fishy aftertaste that some other vitamins have. And you know, that's important to me too. I also love that its capsule design is gentle on an empty stomach since I take Ritual Essential for Women every morning before I work out. The minty essence in every bottle keeps things fresh and helps make taking your multis actually enjoyable every day. Ritual's Essential for Women 8 Plus is one of the few women's multivitamins that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. 
It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Ritual is offering our listeners 30% off during your first month. Visit ritual.com NTM to start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. Again, Ritual is offering our listeners 30% off during your first month month. This is a great deal. All you have to do is visit ritual.com slash NTM to start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. And while you're there, check out their other fantastic products as well. Again, that's ritual.com slash NTM. So if you're, if you're feeling really sad about this breakup, um, but you're feeling like you made a lot of mistakes. How can you forgive yourself? Mm, that's a huge one. Well, that's a big topic, right? Uh, for me, I, uh, to forgive oneself, I think, starts by telling the truth about what really happened and what was your part in what happened. On the other hand, what was not your part in what happened? And then I find it's also really helpful to sort out what's the part um, I'm gonna, what's what's the part of your part that's just about not being skillful? There were things you didn't understand. If you could rewind it all, you would be more skillful. You would handle things in a more effective way, maybe in the future. And what is the part of your part, if at all, that deserves a little bit of remorse? Maybe an internal feeling, a, a wince of healthy remorse, like, okay, I blew that. I, I broke my own code. I crossed a line I really shouldn't have crossed. I deserve to feel bad about that. Okay, so identify that. Paradoxically, when you tell the truth to yourself, and sometimes you end up telling the truth to other people, a friend, a trusted confidant, a parent, a therapist, whoever, maybe something, a lot of people just tell the truth to God, their sense of that. Okay, fine, you've told the truth. And in that truth-telling is an honest acknowledgement of your own real responsibility in the matter, including what it was a matter of skillfulness and what was truly a kind of fault that it's okay to feel some remorse for? Paradoxically, when you take responsibility for what truly is your fault, it helps you become freer about what actually happened and can help move you to forgiving yourself for what happened. The second thing I suggest is be clear what you're going to do differently from now on. Uh, you know, have moral traction, know what you're going to do, make a different plan, resolve to act differently, uh, resolve to not have an intense conversation after you've had two glasses of wine or whatever it is that you're going to do differently in the future. And then the last thing is to really deliberately and actively forgive yourself. Uh, say things to yourself. I've said them to myself uh, like, okay, you blew it, but I forgive you. Uh, you know, try to mobilize a sense of people you know and care about. You could even talk to them and ask them to forgive you. Sometimes you actually go to the person involved directly, like the person you just broke up with, and ask them to forgive you. But that's a, a really big step. But fundamentally is to forgive yourself. Um, to finish here, I uh, was once really thinking about a person in my family system that I had felt very wronged by and uh, really upset with and mistreated over the years, et cetera, et cetera. And I was ruminating about it and I was trying to forgive them. And I got up to forgiving them, but I was still really bothered by it all. And then I realized I needed to forgive myself too. I needed to forgive myself for, for my own part in the matter. And that final step was critically important in not being upset about it any longer. 
what is it that got you interested in in exploring this whole question of of happiness and and the mm. impact the brain has on it yeah the well, how much time do you have? No, just kidding. <laughs> Money, no, I, we're, we we I'll love talking to you about this. Oh, well, think about me if you like for yourself, and people listening can think about for themselves. I think that a lot of people, adults, when they look back about what they knew when they were little but could not put into words, and there's a way in which a lot of what kids know, including little kids, five-year-olds, four-year-olds, two-year-olds, there's a lot of things that we know then that are, that are really important to have known then, and it's important in a way to reclaim them. So for myself, when I was young and you know, raised in an ordinary family in um, suburbs, suburbs of Los Angeles, um, I knew as a kid that there was a lot of unnecessary unhappiness around me. There was a lot of fussing and feuding that was unnecessary in my family, in my neighborhood, in my school. And I get to see it in the grownups. A lot of unnecessary hassle, bickering, fault-finding, tension, stressing, grudges. I could just see it. And that just set me on my way. I, was, I had a longing inside me to understand what was going on and to try to figure out how to have it be different. And that kind of set me on my way. And then on the basis of that, I initially got interested in psychology when I was at UCLA a long time ago, graduated in 1974, also the human potential movement. And that took me into the mindfulness traditions, you know, the meditative, contemplative traditions, which really can offer sometimes a kind of laser-like, or mixing my metaphor, a microscope into your own mind, particularly when it gets really quiet. You can see a lot of stuff there. And then uh, I always was very interested in the brain because it was very clear that what's happening in the body, especially the nervous system, especially, especially the brain, its headquarters, really shapes our experience. But there wasn't that much science about it. But starting about 20 years ago, more and more information was starting to come forward uh, about the, the hardware, the kind of uh, three pounds of tofu-like tissue inside the coconut of the skull. And uh, as you know more and more in simple, practical ways about what's going on in there and how it affects how you feel and how other people feel and act moment to moment to moment, when you understand that more, then you start seeing practical things you can do. Like we were talking earlier about the brain's negativity bias. When you realize that, you realize, uh-oh, I better pull out as fast as I authentically can from negative thought loops and resentments and self-criticism and anxious rumination. I better pull out of that quickly because I know that my brain is very sponge-like for that kind of crud really sinking in. And on the other hand, when I know that my brain is not a very good learner from beneficial experiences, even though those are the building blocks of the psychological resources we want to grow inside ourselves, the inner strengths we want to grow inside ourselves and in our kids and other people, when I know that my brain is not really good at that, then, okay, I want to help my brain really receive into it, into itself, the good that's possible to grow inside oneself. So those are just two examples of what happens when you know some things about your brain. And then as you know more and more about your own brain, um, there are other ways to influence it uh, that are really effective and supported by new research. What's going through the mind of Buddha, of a top athlete or a top business professional that is different than the average person's brain? I love to think about that because my own background, uh, among other things, I've done a lot of rock climbing. 
And I was pretty good. I was never great, great, great. But I would watch people who are great, great, great and try to study what in the world they're doing. And so you see that in any area. You want to be a great golfer, study a great golfer rather than the guy swinging a club randomly next to you. So um, if you're interested in the upper limits of human potential, being really effective in the world while also retaining a core of resilient well-being. So for me, that's kind of how I would put it. You're very effective, uh, including in real-world challenges, but in, while simultaneously meeting those challenges with a core of resilience and deep well-being, a kind of inner happiness, love, and peace is how I would describe well-being. Okay. What we have increasingly learned is that, uh, first of all, their brains are like our brains in most ways. That said, there's some important differences. One of them is that there tends to be less negative emotional reactivity. Uh, key regions of the brain in peak performers in different areas, including elite athletes or astronauts or people who have to function really well under intense pressure. And you see that as well in people who've done an enormous amount of inner practice year after year after year. If you put them in a situation inside, let's say, an MRI and you flash a picture of an angry face or if you flash a picture of something that uh, is catastrophic or upsetting, uh, the brain responds to it in, in, in parts of it that have to do with dealing or coping with what's happening. But key part of the brain, the amygdala, the kind of alarm bell of the brain, does not react so much to what's negative. That's a key finding. Another key finding is that parts of the brain that are involved in sort of steady mindfulness feeling centered and clear and not getting distracted easily and not getting knocked off your course easily. Those parts of the brain tend to have literally more uh, cortical tissue in them. They literally become a little thicker. And as they become thicker, they become more able to process information and do what they're supposed to do. So it's meaningful that these parts of the brain that have to do with regulating attention Traditionally, you could call it steadiness of mind, being kind of centered and steady, even when the world around you is going crazy. That uh, is developed in those sorts of people. And then the last thing I would just say is that there seems to be less stress chemistry, stress reactivity going on inside them. They can get revved up, but the key distinction is they're revved up without getting negative about it emotionally. In other words, they can be fiery or fierce or really determined without getting really angry or frightened. Uh, they can work through conflicts with other people and stick up for themselves, but they don't get uh, hijacked by resentment or anger or violence or aggression toward those other people. Uh, neuroscience is a baby science. There's still so many things we're learning, including about what's going on inside the brains uh, and nervous system of people that are really admirable and operating at a high level. Uh, I, don't, I would love to you know, get an MRI of someone who's enlightened. I don't know. I'd love to have an MRI uh, in real time of someone who's going through some kind of transformational positive experience. We don't yet have that. Uh, but what is really clear, here's the takeaway for me. The little things that we do every day to disengage uh, as soon as we authentically can from negative mental activity and the little things we do every day to rest our minds on ordinary, authentic, 
beneficial experiences, a little moment of gratitude, a little moment of reassurance, a little moment of feeling good about ourselves, a little moment of being connected with our friends and family. The more that we do that gradually, truly accumulates over time. And you can actually see that in the brains of people who have had some kind of long-term practice like meditation compared to people who are like them in terms of age or gender or income status, things like that, but who have not done that long-term practice. And I find that really motivating to know that what you're doing actually makes a difference in your own brain from the inside out. So what would you advise parents to do to use the principles in your research to help their children? That's a great question. And as a parent of a 30-year-old and a 27-year-old and someone who, uh, my background's in developmental psychology, my dissertation was on 15-month-olds. So, and I've worked in a lot of schools. So, uh, and I just met with two 14-year-olds. So, uh, I have a real interest in this territory. I think one is to, depending on the age of the child, is to give them a little bit of information. Uh, these days, we would think that, of course, a child should know a little bit about, especially moving into the teens, sexuality, how the body works, taking care of yourself. Why not know a little bit about your own brain? And um, there are some good books about that, uh, not not written by me, uh, so I'm not pitching myself, but you can look into that area and find things. So I would inform kids a little bit. Second, I would look for little opportunities in the flow of their day for the child to take in the good, to slow it down, not be running around so much in our kind of revved up ADD culture, zooming from this to that. Stay with some useful experience for a breath or two or three so it can really, really sink in. Uh, kids often are having one nice moment after another, but they're flipping into the next one. They're changing the channels so quickly, uh, especially these days, that there's not enough time for the current useful experience, moment of connection, moment of accomplishment, moment of worth, et cetera, there's not enough time for the current experience to really sink in. So that's the second thing I would do as a parent, to encourage my kids uh, just a, you know, half a minute here, five seconds there, several times a day to slow it down and receive into themselves the good stuff. And then the last thing I would suggest, especially with kids up to around 12, 13, 14, who will put up with some psychobabble from their parents to extend to extend their bedtime, uh, hang out with your kid when you put a kid to bed. That's a really good time. Just again, it's it's a nice time of connection, but also the brain is very receptive in that sort of glide path into sleep. And the things that happen there in the last few minutes before falling asleep can really linger and reverberate over the next six, seven, eight, ten hours that the child's asleep. So doing little things at that time where you talk with a child about um, good things that have happened over the day or good things that are true here and now and really help the child not just talk about the experience or what happened, but actually have an experience. And then when the child does have that experience, take the five or 10 or 20 seconds to slow it down to help it really land inside the kid. And I've known a number of parents, there's no official study about that little last suggestion I'm making here, but I have known a number of parents who've used that with their kids, often with some initial skepticism. And then they'll come back a month later and they'll say, I thought that was a stupid idea, Rick, but you know, we did it. And I got to tell you, I don't know what, it seems to have made a big difference. So those would be my key suggestions. I've been finding recently that even if I'm happy in my personal life, 
I feel guilty in a lot of ways because there is so much tragedy going on around the world. And, you know, I, I feel bad that good things are happening to me. How can I make myself feel good and make myself feel like I'm doing enough um, yeah. to help people who need it? Yeah, well, first recognize you have a good heart, that you're concerned about that. And uh, beyond that, uh, to me, what you're really getting at is the ways in which multiple things are simultaneously true. I mean, as we are talking here, people are dying tragically. It's also true that as we're talking here around the world, many, many wonderful things are happening. Uh, People are getting married. They're coming together. They're Babies are being born, literally, as we're speaking here, and many, many good things are also true. So first point is for us to have compassion and to open the heart wide to really um, bear the suffering in the world, we need to grow resources inside ourselves. We need to grow calm. We need to grow emotional balance. Otherwise, we just get flooded, and that shuts down the compassion. And the way we grow those resources that can help us keep our heart open is through generally enjoyable experiences. Second point, to actually address the hard things in life, whether they're local to us in our own family or neighborhood or company, or uh, to address the hard things that are more or bad things that are in society or the world altogether. To address those things, we need to be resourced inside. Again, we need to have inner strengths of various kinds, including our ability to work together with other people in common cause to deal with those tough things. And so, if anything, turning toward beneficial experiences, usually enjoyable ones like in the ways that we're talking about here, uh, you don't just do it for yourself. You actually do it uh, for the whole world altogether. And then the last thing I would just mention is that, and this is something I've definitely thought about a lot because in my own tradition, there's a strong emphasis on compassion. Uh, As we uh, look out at um, the world and the suffering in it, it's important to remember, if I suffer more, that does not make them suffer less. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so there's there are terms for this sort of thing, including the, the term survivor guilt. Uh, just uh, my misery is not going to lessen the misery of the world. And uh, another way to put it is, if you think of it morally, uh, we have the greatest duty to the beings that we have the most power over. So, for example, a surgeon has power over a patient. So a surgeon has a great duty to the patient. Parents have power. Teachers have power over children. They have a duty to their children. Well, Who's the one being among all others that you have the most power over? It's yourself. It's your future self. And uh, it's sensible to do things that are wholesome and moral and and sensible to help your future self um, have as rich and fulfilled a life as possible, which will also help your future self have more inside herself or himself than to offer to others too. And what would you advise someone do if their life is going well, but they are close friends or close family members with someone whose life is not going well? How do you how should they use the principles of your research to help that person? Yeah, I, I think it's extremely important. You're making me think about my father who uh, had a series of strokes and uh after many, many months, eventually uh, passed away a couple years ago. And um, I know many people are dealing with really difficult things. I think it's very important to, as a teacher of mine once put it, stop for suffering. In other words, to slow it down enough to really honor 
what's happening and not be glib about it, not use positive psychology as a kind of bypass from dealing with what's right here under our noses. So you feel it. That's the thing I said earlier about those three steps. You be with it. The first and foremost, most fundamental thing is to be with it. You be with it. And then what's also true? What's also true is a sometimes a kind of grim humor in what you're dealing with. What's also true is that flowers are blooming. Um, coffee smells good. Uh, we love each other. That's also true alongside what's happening. What's also true is professionals sometimes get involved, medical system or care providers. They, they are trying to do the best they can. That's also true. And so for me, it's really about not positive thinking, which I reject. I don't believe in it. I also don't believe in negative thinking. I believe in reality thinking, realistic thinking, where you see the whole picture. Uh, both science and the spiritual traditions emphasize that it's the truth that sets us free. It's the whole picture that we want to see. And so for me, when dealing with situations like this, whether it's in our immediate family with someone who's ill or is declining, or when we think about our society in general, we want to be able to really, really see what's hard about that and do the best we can over the long haul about that while also seeing uh, the beauty, the rainbows, the, the children, the, the sincere efforts of so many good people, and to appreciate that it's if you only see the, the difficult, if you only see the painful, it's hard to grow resources inside to deal with it. It's profound and it's paradoxical that we grow the resources to deal with the bad by repeatedly experiencing and internalizing the good. Our show is called Nobody Told Me, and we always like to ask, what's the nobody told me lesson that you have learned in life? What did nobody tell you going into this work that you now know? Wow, that's a fantastic question. Good. I'm glad, I'm glad you like it. Makes us feel good. Makes us feel good, I'm yeah. A lot of questions. <laughs> that's a fantastic question to I mean, I, I don't want to create a lot of dead to air time, right? But no, no, you've no. Got to think about it, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a great question. Well, well, if if we were to do it narrowly, I want to do it broadly, just about not just being a psychologist, really. Sure, uh, take it wherever you want. Yeah, but more like a human. Um, wow, there's so much about that. Well, I'll tell you one thing that I find with so many, many people, nobody told me that deep down. I was basically a good person. And I see so many people, honestly, who routinely recognize that the people around them are basically good persons. But it's sort of a shock to experience that in themselves. And in fact, they don't think that about themselves. Deep down, they think of themselves typically as sort of a meh person <laughs> or even a bad person. And uh, what actually I observe happens is that when Around that sometimes is sometimes a kind of defensive or compensatory arrogance. And actually, when people really let it in, that deep down, you're a basically good person, not a saint, not perfect, a work in progress, but basically a good person, people actually become less conceited. They become less arrogant and egotistical. So I would, I would say that was definitely not anything any, I got told in my childhood or really, you know, in my adulthood in general. Um, I'd say one last thing, too. Nobody ever really told me about uh, how big the impact of anger is on other people, 
I'd say a large fraction of mistakes I've made in this life have come from just dumping my anger on somebody. And uh, it's taken me a while to appreciate. And nobody, again, told me that, uh, as the Buddha put it a long time ago, getting angry at others is like throwing hot coals with bare hands. Both people get burned. Now, it's important not to suppress anger. And I think that's especially important to get across uh, with respect to people who've been routinely told, such as women and children over the years, that they should not be so angry. And (laughs) there's a reason why they're so angry, right? Um, But it's the acting out of the anger. It's the flaming on others, which I just am stunned by these days that people do through social media. And they would never say to a person face-to-face stuff that they just routinely harsh on people uh, through Twitter, Facebook, and whatnot. The net of all that for me is another thing I was never told was the importance of being careful about anger. So you, you asked me for one and I gave you two. Oh, hey. Hey, we'll, we'll take two. We could go on for hours. <laughs> right. We, we could. Um, Dr. Rick Hansen, it has been so amazing to talk to you. Um, I've been a super fan of yours since I first heard you on with Lewis Howes a couple of years ago. And mm. um, your books are on my Kindle. And um, it's really an honor to talk to you. You are the New York Times bestselling author of Hardwiring Happiness and Buddha's Brain. You are also the senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley. Um, we would love to speak to you more about so many other things relating to happiness in the future. But, um, yeah, we've had a great talk with you. Thank you it so would be much. It a complete pleasure. You're very welcome, and it's been an honor for me as well. Again, that's been Dr. Rick Hansen. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. And we thank you for joining us. Sunday.